What's going on, guys? Welcome to another episode of Healthspin Academy. I'm your host, Craig Shearheart, and with me today is my special guest, Mr. John Welburn. Um, hey. He's a huge mogul in the uh, in the fitness world. He started off with a bachelor from University of California, Berkeley, where he played varsity football, went on to complete a master's in education from University of California, and then played nine years in the NFL with the Eagles, Chiefs, and Patriots. And since then, he's kind of shifted into uh, strength and conditioning world. He served as CEO of Well Food for six years and then founded CrossFit Football, which became Power Athlete in 2009. So today is all about how John helps get people freakishly strong and fit and healthy. John, thanks so much for being here, man. Cool. Thanks for having me. Um, so I want to kick this off with athletics growing up. I assume you went on to pro, pro athletics. Was that something that was kind of pushed on you as a kid? Was it just like genetics? You just kind of uh, decided to go that road at some point? Was there a turning point? What, what was that like kind of growing up? Um, man, I really wish there was some really cool, elegant story about how I dreamt about being a professional football player my whole life. And, <laughs> you know, like my entire life was dedicated towards this, you know, idea of training for, you know, human performance, but it wasn't, yeah. uh, I really Fair had enough. no aspirations to play professional football. Interesting. When I was pretty young, um, I got into, you know, obviously I played baseball, I played basketball. Yeah. Um, I, I grew up in Southern California, so I went to the beach a ton. I surfed, I was in junior lifeguards. I mean, all the things that a kid does, I played soccer. And um, I got into fighting, got into martial arts pretty early on, about six years old. My older brother got beat up by like some local bully. And, you know, like all kids in the 80s, when you get beat up by the bully, what do you do? You go to the the dojo. So my dad wasn't much of a fighter, took my brother down to this, um, you know, Japanese Shotokan uh, martial arts deal and dropped him off. And about three weeks after he came home and started beating up on my other brother and I, my dad just took all three of us. (laughs) So I got into martial arts really early. Yeah. And the instructor was like this Japanese dude. It was like hardwood and floors. Um, he used to like, you know, I mean, people get tossed on these hardwoods. You had to kneel a bunch. We got beat with this like bamboo boken stick. Oh, and wow. I remember I came home one day and I was like, mom, you know, the, uh, the sensei that like, hits us with a stick. And she's like, yeah, I mean, <laughs> it's, it's karate. Like you've seen, you know, you guys watch Kung Fu theater on Sundays and they beat the shit out of those guys. <laughs> so I just figured that was normal. Yeah, I uh, did that for about four years. And then when I was about 10 years old, I thought uh, kicking was stupid. And it was mainly because we were watching a ton of boxing. So my dad was a big boxing fan. Yeah. And we watched, um, you know, Sugar Ray Leonard, Marvis Marvin Hagler. I mean, uh, Roberto Duran, like you wow. know, all, all of these fights that were going yeah. on. And uh, I was addicted. Um, huh. And I had this dream. I was like, you know what? Um, these guys are martial artists. They're boxers. And I want right. to be a boxer. Yeah. So about 10 years old. Uh, I decided kicking was stupid. I want to get into boxing. The problem was uh, the only boxing program was down at the Y down in San Pedro. And I grew up in Torrance, Palos Verdes area. Yeah. So I found a kickboxing academy that okay. had boxing so I, that I could ride my bike to. So I would ride Perfect. my bike um, to this John Barrett Kickboxing Academy. And I got into doing that and really enjoyed the boxing aspect and, you know, like the jumping rope and like, you know, I mean, dude, we were like Rocky fans. So, yeah. you know, like Rocky three, Rocky four, you know, like that was like, you know, foundational stuff. Yeah. So I had visions in my head, like I would like to be a professional boxer. <laughs> and, uh, when I got to high school, um, I did some stand up with a guy named Nono Labonsier, who was a, a French dude who ended up, um, getting brought in by the Gracie family to teach them to do stand up. and his son's oh, an wow. fighter. And I think his daughter is like the top, one of the top jujitsu players in the world. That's uh, wild. so I would go train with Nono. And ended up getting into, you know, being exposed to a whole bunch of different stuff. But um, I remember about that time we were in the, we, we were boxing, we were fighting. 
Mm-hmm. And I ended up kind of getting in the ring with a dude who was a little bit older than me. And uh, I remember he, he hit me pretty good, uh, you know, cr- opened up uh, right underneath my cheek Yikes. and uh, took a big hit. And I remember thinking, like, I'm going to go play football. <laughs> and uh, it's like my, my older brothers all played football. Yeah. And they told me all the cool guys played football. They both were, uh, went on and played college football division three. So I, um, you know, wanted to go play football. Uh, mainly because, you know, I didn't want to be uncool, but the thing that I was most attracted to was the lifting weights aspect. Mm. Um, and I mean, this stems from like years before I remember I was probably about that time I got into boxing. Yeah. Uh, we did something, there's something in Southern California. I don't know where you're from. Toronto ish. Uh, yeah. Okay. Toronto. Yeah. So I, I grew up in Southern California, yeah. uh, like right near the beach and there's a program called junior lifeguards. Yeah. And it's like, uh, it starts at about 10 years old and it's a, basically it's a lifeguard prep program. Right. Where you go in and, uh, you know, we would just go to the beach, uh, and you would surf and you would run and swim and you basically did all the, all the lifeguard stuff. Huh. And you would, the idea was that you start at 10 and you go through like two, you know, two years of C's and two years of B's and you go through the A's. And then at yeah. the end you're like 16, 17, you take your lifeguard test. Mm-hmm. So we did that and it was like first aid and it, it's like the coolest program on the planet. Yeah. Like the one sad thing that when we moved to Texas from California, like one thing that was like my, my biggest reservation was that my kids wouldn't get a chance to do junior lifeguard because mm-hmm. I learned like CPR, I learned first aid. Yeah. Uh, I learned how to like, uh, you know, swim in the ocean, even though we did it as kids, but like surfing and just like being Super comfortable. Valuable. Yeah. Like, like anywhere we go, like we just, we, we took our kids to Costa Rica, um, a couple, nice. about a month ago and like, you know, we're out there and I'm surfing, you know, body surfing big waves and the kids are like, I was like, dude, this is all we did as kids. So <laughs> long story short. Yeah. Um, I'm, we're at the aid state or at the lifeguard station doing CPR. And we see like, uh, like basically what we thought was a riot. It was just a whole bunch of people kind of yelling and like moving. And we we're like, the shit. Wow. So we all kind of get up and we went over to where the boardwalk was like the strand. Yeah. And there was people like kind of partying and like, we heard like just commotion and all of a sudden it came into light. What was causing the commotion? It was a dude walking <laughs> and this guy was just walking and people were treating it like, uh, like an Avenger was like on the deal wow. and this guy walked by us and he was probably about six five about like 300 pounds yeah um wearing shorts string tank top the dude's chest was so big it looked like he could sit a beer can on it <laughs> and wow. he was walking and like he was so physically impressive that like yeah. people were fucking losing their minds like they wow. like I, I had never seen anybody that big um i'd never seen anybody look like that he looked like a superhero wow and uh so we followed him and then he proceeded to run up and down there was like a big uh, kind of a ramp like big concrete ramp. Yeah. Um, you know, maybe a hundred yards and he just started sprinting up and down and we watched this dude and we were like, I don't know what that guy is, but that guy looks like a superhuman. <laughs> and, wow. um, his name was, uh, he since passed away, but he was a pretty famous football player, a guy named Lyle Alcedo who played okay. defensive tackle for the Raiders. If you guys want to look him up. Yeah. Yeah. Um, he just looked like a mutant. And I remember thinking that day, like, I like to like, I like to be big and strong like that. Yeah. And I was kind of skinny at the time. Yeah. And, uh, so there was like a lot of weird things. Like I wanted to lift weights. I wanted to be big and strong. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so there was all these kind of like other pieces. And the one thing I knew about football was that you got to lift weights. And I knew <laughs> that all the people that hung out in the weight room and lifted weights were all big and strong. Yeah. And so there was like this kind of like, maybe they just get big through osmosis. They just are around the weights and get big. I didn't <laughs> know what you had to do with them. I just knew that there was big, strong people around those weights and I, I wanted to be big and strong. So those were like kind of the two things that allowed me to go play football. And uh, one, I wanted to lift weights. And two, um, playing football felt like fighting against people that didn't know how to fight. 
<laughs> and that <laughs> allowed a- me to to go in and play and be pretty good and you know like things like uh you know jumping rope handwork footwork yeah. speed all these other deals that i developed within the in the fighting um you know training uh paid huge dividends for sure uh, going and playing football yeah. so um i started playing football when i was 14 freshman high school uh, yeah. by the time i was a sophomore or junior i think i had like 100 scholarship offers and wow. ended up um you know looking at a whole bunch of schools um yeah. But the selection for me came down really to the education aspect. Mm-hmm. And the reason being was I never really had any aspirations to play pro football. Huh. One, I, I had never really known anybody that played. I mean, we saw Lalo Zato and we saw some professional football players. Right. Um, my peewee basketball coach um, was a guy named Art Shell, who's in the Hall of Fame, so mm-hmm. he, who lived in our neighborhood. Yeah. So like, I, I had seen this a little bit, but I, I didn't ever see any white dudes. So I just didn't really think like, you know, a white middle-class kid from Palos Verdes was going to necessarily go, go play in the NFL. Um, That's wild. My, my dad was super sharp. Uh, my dad graduated high school when he was like 16. Oh, wow. Graduated college at like 19, graduated law school, working full-time at like 22, and was a you know practicing trial attorney and one of the smarter people I've ever met in my life. That's wild. And uh, so education was always at the forefront. Yeah. So I remember when I was looking at all these schools, where are you going to go? Uh, the school, the, well... The best degree I could hang on my wall who would give me a full scholarship was UC Berkeley. Um, huh. So that's kind of where I ended up. Amazing. Uh, and the football thing ended up panning out pretty well. <laughs> um, well, uh, I, I never went to school thinking, uh, you know, I'm going to go play in the NFL like uh, Tony Gonzalez, who yeah. was in the Hall of Fame. Yeah. Um, he and I came in the same year. You know, Tony was there three years, went on mm-hmm. and got drafted by the Chiefs. Yeah. Uh, he was there more as like, a, you know, a springboard to get to the NFL. Yeah. I just figured like, uh, you know, I'm getting a free education and I'm exchanging playing football for it. So my goal is to graduate and try to get as many degrees as I can and set myself up for the next evolution, which I got my, or I worked, I didn't, I never got to hand in my thesis. That's a whole other fucking discussion <laughs> on. Um, so I, I went to, you know, I graduated with a BA in rhetoric, which yeah. is like an English philosophy argumentative approach deal that was just really pre-law. Yeah. And then they had a one, then in my fifth year, I had to get in a master's program. That was a one year. Yeah. So I applied for this education and ended up doing well and was basically supposed to hand in my thesis a few years later um, after I played in the NFL because the thesis had to do with why players leave early mm. and why they don't value their education when they go to professional sports. Oh, interesting. So, like, yeah, like, so the huh. whole premise would only work if I actually got the chance to go play in the NFL and wrote it. Right. And so what happened were, were was my advice. Were they flexible on the deadlines? Were they like, uh, coming to you down? <laughs> Sorry, man. No. I'm in the pro well, ball. They, <laughs> they, they were totally flexible. And then my advisor, the professor who's in charge of the program, ended up passing away suddenly. Oh, really? Oh, wow. And then the guys who came in to take over for him basically were like, no, you've been out for three years. Really? And I'm like, dude, I have this written. Like, this is, this is all the emails and everything. And they basically yeah. blew me off. Wow. And uh, I didn't. I never got a chance to handle my thesis, and so I never got my master's, which was kind of a big thorn. Oh, that's brutal. Yeah, but that's I mean, absolutely wild. I guess yeah. things things worked out okay otherwise. But that's yeah, wild no, to I, me. Yeah, yeah. It, well, it, it there was also another issue. I think um, yeah. I don't know if you've read uh, "Coddling of the American Mind." I have not. No, um, you should definitely check it out. It's a yeah. real interesting book. It gets into like the whole. Uh, you know, where we saw this kind of switch in education. And now mm-hmm. all of a sudden, you know, when, we, when I was raised, it was sticks and stones may break my bones, but names will never hurt me. 
And now all of a sudden words are weapons. And because they cause stress and stress is damaged, now all of a sudden words are weapons. So there's a a really interesting book that shows the evolution of why this changed. Hmm. And when people are like, you know, what's wrong with this generation? It really goes into great detail in this coddling of the American mind. Um, I saw that firsthand in that I want to say, man, maybe my fourth or fifth year. So while I was working, that was actually a little bit earlier than that. Um, Mm -hmm. Somewhere in my third or fourth year, I got invited to come back and sit at a round table uh, at the Berkeley School of Education and just answer questions about this. And I had a lady kind of jump on me a little bit, um, uh, just kind of was pretty argumentative uh, Mm -hmm. about some of the things I said. And I kind of not dismissed her, but I did where I was like, hey, here's the deal. Mm-hmm. I was a student. Yeah. I sat where you sat. Now yeah. I play in the NFL and I can give you definitive answers on why this is. And the problem was my answers did not fit within the paradigm in which they were looking. Sure. And I left there thinking like, man, I probably didn't handle that as well as I should because I just dismissed her. <laughs> yeah. And then uh, when my professor passed away and my deal was like, hey, can I hand this in? And they were like, no. I was like, man, felt like if I had navigated that other situation mm-hmm. a little bit better, they might have let me hand it in. But yeah. But then again, uh, I've never, I've never done well with myself where I've curbed my ideas and my thoughts based on what others want. I feel like, um, you know, in this world, people are going to like you, some are going to hate you. Yeah. Uh, you know, the one thing I don't want to be is un- uh, unauthentic or unoriginal. For sure. Yeah, hundred percent. So that little that education piece, do, do you find that kind of guided you through coaching to kind of complement the stuff you're doing? Or how did the coaching piece come together for you? Uh, kind of another accident. Um, <laughs> I, uh, you know, obviously got hurt. So I, I ended up with, you know, nine accredited years. And then in my 10th year, I went to go play for the Patriots and I got hurt in the last preseason game. Oh man. Um, ended up not seeing anything and then kind of getting into a weird deal where they had to make a roster move. I got cut and then they went to resign me and I couldn't pass the physical. And so all of a sudden I came home and had surgery. Oh, shit. Um, So before that, uh, I went to go play for the Patriots. I was living in Newport Beach and I was driving Mm -hmm. to Carson every day, which is up in uh, Athletes Performance was there. Now Mm -hmm. now they're Exos. It's a pretty long drive, if you guys know, Orange County to LA. Mm -hmm. And uh, I just got tired of doing the drive. So I started going up there a few days and then I would train. uh, I had like a little gym in my garage. But then I started training at a CrossFit gym because they had a bunch of bumper plates. Yeah. Uh, Somewhere around that time at the CrossFit gym, uh, the owner ended up reaching out to CrossFit HQ. It's like, hey, I got this professional athlete training here. And somewhere at some point, they were like, hey, do you want to come do this thing called the CrossFit Games? <laughs> and so about a week before, uh, at first I was like, no. And then they hit me up about it again. And I was like, yeah, what is it working out? Well, I'll go fucking crush these people. <laughs> so uh, the week before I went to training camp, I went up and I did the CrossFit Games. Yeah. I uh, came that was, home. That was the first one, right? The 2007? Uh, second one. Okay. So two, 2008, they ended up okay. making a movie about it called Every Second Counts, which I yeah. think is still on Netflix. Yeah, that's wild. Um, and then a week later, I went to training camp uh, for the Patriots. And I, I always think that maybe like the load and all the training might have contributed to injury, but hindsight's 2020. Yeah. So when I, uh, when I came home and had surgery, I got a um, phone call from Greg Glassman, who was CEO mm-hmm. of CrossFit and founder at the time. Yeah. Um, and asked me if I would come help them develop their technology on how to train athletes. And it was the oh, first cool. time I'd ever had anybody discuss training in terms of a technology. Huh. Um, you know, I always thought kind of training was uh, more about, you know, said principle, more about stress, uh, right. you know, recovery. I mean, I looked at it more in terms of like crafting an organism more than technology in terms mm. of like, 
it, it just was a really interesting and I still, and the way I said it was exactly the way he said it. So for me, it's kind of a interesting thing in that it kind of uh, sparked my brain and thought, you know, is training a technology and more importantly, what is my technology? I know what CrossFit is, but what's my yeah, tech. Right. And so uh, I said, yeah, and ended up CrossFit football ended up launching about a month later. Yeah. And it was my interpretation of how to train athletes using the principles of CrossFit right. and translated into a, uh, I guess you could say like a vernacular or just really just a lexicon. I mean, whatever you want to call it Yeah, uh, for CrossFitters to understand how to do strength training, but it was based on an entirely set different set of principles, mm-hmm. you know, CrossFit, um, increased work capacity, broad time, modal domains, you know, mm-hmm. um, you know, constantly varied, you know, it was based on, based on my own principles of training, but mm-hmm. translated to, so that the market could understand. Right. That's, that's wild. Um, very cool. Uh, we actually used to run CrossFit football classes at, at my gym. Nice. Uh, yeah, my the guy that I opened the gym with uh, took your course and was like blown away. Um, well, they, it, was, it, they were super it was, popular. Yeah. Well, it, it was wild to me. Um, I knew, you know, because I mean, it was a, it, it's what I'd done since I was 14 years old. I mean, yeah. my entire life. Mm-hmm. And so it was amazing when CrossFit reached out to me. My first question is like, do people want to know this stuff? <laughs> like, I just kind of thought it was a, I guess like a, a, a discipline for people that were I, like, and th- this is another weird thing. Let me like, see if I can preface this in a different way. Mm. Um, being a professional athlete, especially playing the NFL, you live in a really weird bubble. It's a very tiny yeah. bubble yeah. where all your friends are professional athletes. You hang mm. out with other professional athletes. So you kind of think the whole world's professional athlete, right? but, but you know that there's other people out there. And I just thought they went to the fucking gym and did like lap pull downs and busu ball <laughs> bullshit and like yeah. did a spin class. Like I didn't know that there were actually people that were training. I thought people just were like doing organized fuck around. Right. Yeah. And huh. so what was wild was when I met the CrossFit community, I was like, wow, these are normal non-professional athletes that are taking their training very, very seriously. Yeah. And uh, I was like, like, I wouldn't have been more surprised. My head popped off (laughs) just because I, I like, um, you know, all my friends are playing the NFL. We go on trips. Like um, I train at a facility with other professional athletes. Like Mm -hmm. I just didn't have access to, you know, civilians or just non-normal, like normal, what I would consider normal people. Yeah. So my first question to CrossFit was like, one, do people want to know this? Mm. And two, is there a market for it? Yeah. And their comment was like, dude, I think there's a whole bunch of people that want to know this stuff. Um, and then when I looked at the, and one of the first questions they asked me was like, do you think CrossFit is an athletic form style of training? Mm. And based upon my lens and the way I viewed training, uh, I said, no, it's not. Uh-huh. Um, Interesting. So, you know, I mean, um, the fundamentals of athletics and especially movement, one, you know, uh, sagittal frontal transverse plane. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so you have different planes of motion, you step yeah. squat, you know, there's like all these different movements. Mm-hmm. When we looked at the CrossFit stuff, it was all sagittal plane, bilateral yeah. hip hinging. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, if you're trying to train athletes to move 360 mm-hmm. degrees, different yeah. planes of motion, step squat, mm-hmm. lunge, jump, run, your training has to be at least mm-hmm. representative of the demands of what you can place your athletes in. For sure. Yeah. And when I broke their stuff down, I was like, it's all sagittal plane bilateral hip hinging. But mm-hmm. that makes sense because of it. But, you know, Greg Glassman, um, you know, uh, injured leg with polio was a gymnast. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you look at gymnastics, it's all, I mean, obviously there is a lot of rotation, but people yeah. fail at the margins of their experience. And this is what his mm-hmm. experience was. Yeah. So, yeah. so the trainer True. reflects his own experience. Yeah. And so a lot of times when you see people's training, or at least the people push out training, it's mm-hmm. very personal to who they are because they're looking at it through their lens. Right. 
something I wanted to do very different is I wanted to develop a blueprint for athleticism the way mm. I understood it. Mm. Um, there was a book I read years ago called Deep Nutrition. And we, we had the lady on our podcast, Power Athlete Radio, recently. And I think I have a in, copy of that somewhere. Yeah, it's yeah. fucking excellent. Yeah. Uh, I think everybody should read it. But in there, she makes reference to something called the Marquette, or I think it's Marquois, Marquois Mask. And Marquois was a mm. uh, plastic surgeon who became with this, uh, like, was fascinated by the idea of beauty and symmetry. And mm. what he did is based off of the Fibonacci sequence, he created this thing called the Marquois Mask, where he could lay these plot like this plotted mask on top of the face and then figure out where people were deficient and then make those corrections and then make somebody more beautiful based off of the idea of symmetry because we right. know what beauty is yeah like like we can all sit in a room and somebody better looking than the norm walks in and everybody will look and know within now they might not be your taste and that might not be your type but there's no denying that that person's pretty or good sure. looking or better looking than others. For sure. Um, just like I'm not a necessarily a big Ferrari fan, but if a front engine V12 Ferrari pulls up, it's going to fucking snap my head around because one, the sound, the movement, the way the aesthetics, all the other stuff is done in such a way that yeah. like it's based on symmetry. Just like so the Jack, Jack dude walking down the beach. Yeah. Like yeah. he, like he looked like a superhero. And yeah. I mean, there's a reason that like, you know, when they draw, uh, you know, superhero characters, they, they look like He-Man or, yeah. you know, you see Chris, Ev or, uh, yeah, Chris Evans or, um, yeah. you know, or uh, Chris Helmsworth or those dudes. I yeah. mean, they look like superheroes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so this Marquois mask, uh, was based on this idea of symmetry mm -hmm. and they could lay it on top and then basically make adjustments because here's the deal. I'm sure you've seen people that have plastic surgery and you look and you're like, shit's fucked up. Yeah. Like something went <laughs> off the rail, but his whole deal was that. You want to make people better looking where you don't know what was done. We just know that it was subtle and mm. the person's better looking than they were before opposed yeah. from like, holy shit, what did you do? And, we, yeah. and then this happens to us. Yeah. So uh, I read that book years ago Yeah. and I became obsessed with this idea of like, there had to be a blueprint for athleticism mm -hmm. and athleticism is really hard to quantify. Yeah. Uh, but what's unmistakable is when you see somebody move through space and do something effortlessly and seamlessly um like just like beauty we know when we see it like think about in basketball or football mm -hmm. or whatever these sports we watch or gymnastics mm -hmm. for example in the olympics when you see somebody do something that takes your breath away there's some uh, something within us that knows that that's athletic you know like the the pinnacle of athleticism yeah you just so try I, to it yeah so yeah. i i went back and uh, defined it the ability to seamlessly and effortlessly combine primal movement patterns through space to accomplish a known or novel task mm. and then took those movements with what we call primal movements and not primal like the liver king but more primal because these are the first ones you live yeah and, you, know, you do and then figured that if i could figure out the components of athleticism within these primal movement patterns and i can increase your proficiency and then do something which is the chunking model which i learned from education you know mm -hmm. like uh um, letters become words, words become sentences, yeah. sentences become yeah. paragraphs deal. Mm -hmm. And then uh, use this term that we developed called athletic problem solving. Mm -hmm. Now, by putting these things, by teaching the parts, putting it together in different ways, and then forcing people to find new ways of doing things, you can increase athleticism. Mm -hmm. And uh, based upon my definition and the lens and the blueprint that we discussed with athleticism, uh, you can analyze other programs to see whether or not they're proficient or deficient. Right. And so when CrossFit approached me, my deal was like, you know, you guys are, are uh, like, you guys are confusing work capacity with athleticism. Mm. You can work, work, you know, you're confusing effort for intensity. I mean, there's just a lot of things mm. that you've done. 
And it's because those guys didn't come from a classical strength conditioning background, mm-hmm. um, you know, but they ended up becoming the most, you know, successful fitness, uh, you know, franchise or whatever you call it, like licensee or whatever. I mean, it's, you know, CrossFit's done more for putting barbells in people's hands and getting people introduced to weightlifting mm-hmm. than anybody else on the planet has ever done. So, yeah. I mean, it, it, you know, for all the negativity and the jokes and the South Park and all that, you can't deny, uh, you can't deny the, the influence and, and the like tidal wave that CrossFit has created. So, you know, I, I tip my hat to them for that. Yeah, for sure. And it is kind of ever evolving. You're like, you mentioned the multiple planes. And I think like the nice thing is that as affiliate owner, you have pretty much free domain to kind of sure. program however you see fit. So we add some rotation stuff and stuff like that. Well, so, well, but before CrossFit football, there was no horizontal pull. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was yeah, also right. no rotation. Yeah, you're right. So, and, and then also with CrossFit mm-hmm. football, we started programming multiple workouts of strength and a conditioning workout. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, that was actually the piece that Glassman told me I virally infected and destroyed the CrossFit community by teaching people that needed to be strong and fit. Yeah. <laughs> so CrossFit football has a, a very interesting distinction in that we completely altered the programming and the approach that people took to CrossFit by realizing that being strong made everything better. And then also programming multiple workouts in a day, which they hadn't done. You just come in and do one wad. Now, every gym you go into has a strength wad conditioning movement yeah. sprint, whatever it is so we looked mm-hmm. at which is really what we did as professional athletes you'd always mm-hmm. go out do your agility your technique yeah uh, your position stuff your sprint work your conditioning yeah. and then the go lift weights yeah absolutely love that so i want to dissect some of the the core principles and strength and it's kind of like i've picked up a lot of stuff just kind of indirectly from your your work over the years and one of the things that stuck out to me is um and i didn't hear this quote directly from you i think it came from barbell shrugged um, and the the principle is that it all works. You know, all the modalities, all the rep schemes. No matter what you're pushing or pressing, you're just basically moving heavy things against resistance over time, x amount of sets. Um, has your opinion of that changed in the last like ten years? Do you think there's like an upper limit to this? Does that depend on the athlete, or is there like how do we use that principle to to sort of uh, limit or or expand our limits when we're thinking about programming? So the the quote ends up being everything works, but not everything works forever and not mm-hmm. everything works optimally. Right. So yeah, just yeah. because something works doesn't mean that that's the best thing to do. Right. Um, and I think the issue comes down to like, I'll just give you an example. I had a guy hit me up and he's like, you know, I've been doing this great uh, strength program. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually, I think it was in uh, reference to um, what was it? Uh, what was the squat every day? Borashiko oh. was, um, um, I don't remember what it's called. I don't uh, remember what you're talking about. Yeah, it's yeah. uh yeah. Um, but it was basically like a Russian squat program where you squat mm-hmm. every day. Yeah. And uh it's um it'll come to me in a second. Yeah. Um and this guy's like, This is the best thing, it's blowing my squat up, and I put 20 pounds on my squat within you know X amount of time. Mm-hmm. No, my problem is you're so physically drained that you can't train anything else. Right. And so I'm like, just because something works doesn't mean that it's optimal. Yeah. Like if your goal is, uh, you know, to get stronger, you, you know, across the board, mm-hmm. it feels like a really shitty thing. And you just, you know, there, there just seems to be this idea that just because something works, like, you know, you can say, hey, I did a bench program and I put five pounds on my bench in a year. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you did get stronger, but what did you leave behind? And yeah. more importantly, you know, could you put 20 pounds on your bench if you had done mm-hmm. something a little more intelligent? Right. So uh, I think the issue comes down to, you know, we're so conditioned for whether or not this works or doesn't work. Mm-hmm. And we don't necessarily look and say, you know, just because something works, does it mean that's optimal? Did it right. result in the effect I was looking for? And more importantly, 
am I trying to get the maximum return from the minimal investment? Right. Um, and that's always been about uh, like the focus of my training has always been about economy of time and economy mm. of movement. Yeah. Like what's the maximum return I can get for the minimal investment. If I yeah. got to, if I got to nuke my town every single day to build one building, it doesn't make sense. <laughs> and, and that's how I, I think analogy. a lot of people approach training. Yeah. They try to bomb themselves every single day, yeah. not realizing that, you know, it's a continuous evolution and that you're looking to build on. Yeah. And, um, the one good thing about doing this for a long time and having hundreds of thousands of data points is all of a sudden, you know, if you look at it in the micro, it doesn't make a ton of sense. But when you take a step back, you realize that there's only a couple of variables for performance and more importantly, mm -hmm. success yeah. it comes down to like the person that can train with the greatest relative intensity with the greatest consistency mm -hmm. is the person that meets their goals. Yeah. You know, without question. Yeah. And, uh, that's been, you know, with the CrossFit thing, and I'm sure you see people start coming six days a week and they're ramping up and then <laughs> yeah. they get hurt and it becomes unsustainable. Yeah. So my sure. whole deal is like the person that can train the longest, the highest relative intensity with the greatest consistency will be the pe person that'll meet their goal. And it just, you know, I mean, think about it for dieting and nutrition. Yeah. If I can eat in caloric restriction longer with a high protein diet than another person, I'm going to end up being the leanest right. individual. Yeah. I absolutely love that. Um, so, and I think a lot of times if the athletes just got to sometimes go through that themselves and I, I'm, I'm include myself in that. Like, I, I think like I bought a little bit into the higher volume is better and more is more. And, but then I remember uh, at some point I did the Texas method. I don't know if you follow. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. So yeah. I, I did that over 12 weeks and my, everything blew up. Like I did less. It was just three times a week and it's, that's the strongest to this day. It's the strongest I've ever been. So it's about finding that kind of key key dosage point kind of like you alluded to like if you're there's just if anything is diminishing returns past the point right you kind of have to find that right right volume that's going to get you ahead and not like at the right time yeah and here here's another deal too um mm -hmm. it really comes down to like uh training like the life cycle or sorry life cycle of an athlete mm -hmm. so the training program that you do as a beginner is very different than the training program you do as an intermediate athlete Absolutely. and an advanced athlete yeah so all of a sudden you become like, okay, hey, I can use a kind of a mix of volume and intensity early on, and then I can use this volume in the middle. And mm -hmm. you get to a point where, you know, as you become more advanced, now all of a sudden things like intensity become more important yeah. due to things like inter and intermuscular coordination and rate yeah. coding and all these other D factors yeah. that as you train, uh, you create greater concert, uh, you know, called symphony or whatnot, but your body yeah. works better. So now all of a sudden you get more out of less. Mm -hmm. So there, there becomes, and I think the reason that power athlete and cross the football has always done very well is that we're not just issuing like, okay, everybody do this. Like yeah. there's different stages and right. different positions that you yeah. have to hit and periodize through. Yeah. And it's because we're looking at the, the, the evolution of an athlete over the life cycle of uh, mm -hmm. their training life. Yeah. I love that. Um, I've seen you post a little bit about high, high school athletes and I think there's like you you mentioned that there's a lot of kind of myths and, and mistraining and stuff like that. And I think the age issue with training has kind of evolved over the years. You know, it used to be never put a barbell on a kid's back or whatever. Um, I think is the, it's shifted a little bit over the years. Do you think there is an age cutoff for strength training? Like, do, like, is there an age of maturity where we should maybe kind of start, start looking at things or what's your take on the uh, I don't think it's ever athletes. too early. Um, so for my kids, uh, my daughters are 10 and, uh, we've started doing some strength training where I bring nice. them in one or two days a week and uh, I've taught them to squat and I've just taught them the basic movements. Mm -hmm. Um, like especially with the Olympic movements, teaching them snatch and clean and just taking cool. them through light variations of that. 
yeah. the majority of their training up to this point has um i'm big on different planes of motion so it's got to mm-hmm. be rotational so they do gymnastics mm-hmm. yeah uh they got to do some stick and spin ball um they need to do something sliding so they've learned to surf or or, or ski and skate Mm-hmm. And then the other big one is swimming. So different, um, you know, orientations, especially within the water. Yeah. Uh, my one daughter uh, rides horses. My other daughter plays basketball and swims. My son does uh, gymnastics. Um, they're supposed to start next month. Um, I wanted my daughters to be 10 before they got into jujitsu and any of the fight stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so they'll start that this year. And uh, I think the strength training, like, um, I don't think that there's a physiological reason to avoid strength training with kids, but yeah. mine more comes down to uh, like just like they're going to have their whole life to lift weights. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if we got a race to get there. So, I mean, I've taught them stuff about 10 years old. Um, I think once they get to high school, maybe about 13 or 14, maybe allow them to get more serious with it. Right. Um, but if, a if a kid want, is excited about lifting weights and wants to lift weights at a younger age, I think it really comes down to just aptitude and desire. Yeah. So I, I don't think that you're going to stunt their growth or, or have, you know, mixed up growth plates in this. Now, I think mm-hmm. if the parent or the individual training is a fucking idiot yeah. and isn't doing age appropriate training, mm-hmm. that's a huge issue. Sure. So basically teaching, um, you know, bilateral hip hinging, which is squatting, stepping, mm-hmm. lunging, uh, pressing, push-ups, body weight, pull-ups. I mean, things like that. I, I believe uh, that should be taught universal to kids. Yeah. Now, whether or not they want to start loading it up and trying to squat heavy, uh, maybe I wouldn't mess with them until they're about 13 or 14. But it really comes down to aptitude and desire. And more importantly, what's what they're excited about. I found that whatever a kid's excited about, put gas on. Yeah, absolutely love that. I think... I think kind of like you alluded to, it's the, it's a great foundation. Whether they fo- follow through with that and start loading up the bar, or whatever, it's just like it's like gymnastics, right? Those kind of fundamental moves, the squatting, depth pulling, um, translates into sports. And if it's there, it's there. And as, yeah, I think as long as they've got the right coach in front of them, yep. I think they're they're good to go. Um, one of the other things you mentioned uh, briefly was uh, periodization, and you kind of it, it sounds like you sort of had that built into your programs where they've yeah. started, they're sort of moving through the program and then there's maybe milestones that hit. Um, do what is your, what is your general broad stroke kind of philosophy around periodization? If you see some coaches that are like, we should never do this all the way. to like, we should absolutely periodize every four weeks. Uh, do you, do you try to get more info from the athlete to decide when those are happening? Um, well, the, um, so when I think periodization, um, I think of, uh, percentages. So -hmm. like they're periodizing within, I mean, we use block periodization. Um, if you're trying to talk about periodization in terms of like set rest, um, that's really, you know, like I I know Jim Wendler likes every four weeks and I have Mm -hmm. coaches that do it every six. Um, I tend to do, uh, based on the athletes, like we'll do a deload or I hate the term deload. I like reload, like I'm putting more bolts in the gun. Yeah. <laughs> uh, maybe every <laughs> nice. six weeks, you know, on the like, if they train six, I give them a seventh week off and laugh for yeah. a little super compensation. Yeah. But I, I really think, um, so I never liked uh, percentages. And I'll just give you an example why. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I went to college, um, I had a strength coach guy named Todd Rice, a uh, really good, excellent strength coach, mm-hmm. uh, taught me a ton of the fundamentals I still use today. Um, the program we did was classic Olympic lifting, snatch, clean, and jerk. Mm. Um, and like heavy push presses, we weren't really allowed to do much in terms of bench pressing, but it was all ton of overhead snatch, clean, jerk, front squat. Um, I don't think I back squatted for the entire time I was there. 
Wow. And uh, it was just heavy front squats. Yeah. And, uh, ton of plyometrics, ton of sprint. Like it, it was the right program for me at the right time because I came right. from like a powerlifting background. Yeah. Um, but the issue came down to we would base everything off of classical periodization. Like, hey, mm-hmm. uh, we're going to test our one RMs. And then for the next 12 weeks, we're going to lift in somewhere between, you know, 78 and 84% for mm-hmm. these, you know, working sets. Mm-hmm. And then at the end of 12 weeks, we're going to retest. And I remember we were about three or four weeks in on the training program. And all of a sudden, like the weights got real light. Like mm-hmm. I remember we were doing like doubles and triples at like, you know, somewhere between 82, 84%. Right. And all of a sudden, like somewhere in there, there was like a couple weeks where I, I felt really strong and everything felt really light. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden, like week six, you know, and all of a sudden, like the, the dog days started coming. Mm-hmm. And I felt dramatically weaker in week 12 than I did in week four or six. Interesting. And uh, when we got to the end, we went to go max out and I, I didn't put, I mean, you know, maybe a few percentages on things. I gained mm-hmm. a little bit of strength. Mm-hmm. And I remember thinking like, shit, if I had maxed out in week four or six, um, I would have smashed whatever right. I did. I felt way huh. more beat up. Yeah. So I, I remember saying like, the next time this comes around, um, I'm going to just fucking max out and see what I can do. Mm. And I, and I, I ended up calling them gambler sets where I was like, you know, that you got to know when to hold them, know when to fold them. Yeah. You know, the, uh, <laughs> Kenny Rogers song. Yeah. And I remember when we went back through to do it again, same thing happened. Huh. All of a sudden I'm warming up and I'm hitting my numbers and everything looks really light. And I just started stacking on weights and ended up smashing a PR by like, I think I cleaned and jerked 172 and a half that day. Wow. Which I, which I had never gotten close to. I mean, I power cleaned 180. But yeah. I'd never been able to uh, to really do like a, a full, you know, um, you know, like a full variation of the lift with a jerk. Wow. And uh, I remember that day I went in and I was like, shit, man, like today feels good. Yeah. So um, I, I really moved away from classical periodization in terms of percentage and got into mm-hmm. something that I call inherent periodization, mm-hmm. which is based more on the idea of ret maxes. So, hey, uh, you know, if I want you to work up to a heavy triple or a heavy double, we're going to kind of pyramid up to those heavy movements. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to base things more off of rep maxes. Yeah. And, and I'm going to base a lot of my training percentages off of what I could, what I either did that day or what I did that week. Right. So I didn't like the idea of like, hey, I'm going to max out on day one mm-hmm. and then I'm going to use that same working max for the next three months. Um, I wanted to basically be able to test as often as I could right. within rep maxes. Yeah. So um, the entire CrossFit football program and really my training was based off of the idea of testing rep maxes. Mm-hmm. And then any of the training we did was based off a of percentage of said rep max. Right. Um, so uh, Chris Morris, who's at Kentucky, um, ended up while he was doing his master's work, reached out to me because he'd been using CrossFit football. And we had a really fruitful discussion on this idea of uh, the idea of like using rep maxes and basing it off of this. And mm-hmm. he ended up writing his master's on something called fluid periodization hmm. and came and gave an incredible uh, talk on it. That's based on this idea of daily matrix and, you know, not using classical periodization, but using rep maxes as a way to drive the training. Yeah. Because what I'm more interested in is like, what's the heaviest reps you can lift on this given day. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if every day is somewhat new, uh, unique and you're able to work up to something heavy, yeah. then there's going to be some inherent periodization in there because obviously you're not going to be able to lift as heavy on certain days as you do mm-hmm. on others. Yeah, I love that. And I think the the workaround, I think, at least when you're using that model, is that the, the 1RM is kind of like a shit show. Like it's theoretically you should be able to hit X reps based on your 1RM, but you're you don't really know. There's just fair athlete variability. Dude, there's way too much athlete variability, not yeah. only in training volume. Um, yeah. 
uh, nervous system efficiency, which has to do mm-hmm. with hormone levels, but also yeah. with, with, uh, with sex, whether or not you're a man or a woman, right. Uh, women will always be able to lift a higher percentage of her one RM for more reps. We used to have girls come in and lift, you know, 85, 90% for 10 or 12 reps where I could never that's, do that. That's and, absolutely and the wild. idea is, is it the fact that like, like it, it, I mean, it comes down to, is it, you know, if you can do 10 reps with 90% of your one RM is your one RM truly correct right not really it is for yeah. them yeah but the reason comes down to is that to really lift a an efficient one rm you have to have a highly adapted nervous system and there's mm-hmm. a direct relationship between testosterone and androgens and yeah. central nervous system efficiency yeah um, that's why women can train at a higher percentage and a higher volume than we can yeah i think just and just like <laughs> looking back in the history i think there's probably there's definitely accuracy to that even just in my population of trained oh yeah um, but i mean look look at women's gymnastics yeah. Uh, like the women's gymnastics, which is way more ground based. I mean, look at the amount of volume that those girls are able to handle for yeah. an extreme amount of time. That's true. Whereas the dudes end up fucking shattering into a million pieces with injuries <laughs> just because it's such a high, you know, I mean, it's just a really high motor demand. Yeah. So true. Um, so you, you mentioned injuries. I don't want to talk about um, mobility slash injury prevention. Do you have uh, the, these pieces built into your programs generally what are your recommendations for that do you have x amount of time people is it kind of a feel it out situation yeah i mean we do have programs like iron flex and some of the ones that we use uh mm-hmm. but for the most part i feel like if um i this is interesting i always thought that lifting weights was like stretching with weight on your back if you're basically <laughs> lifting weights with full range of motion movements uh, i believe that that's a ton of mobility work i've never mm-hmm. been a big like um uh, you know, I like some after, you know, stretching after the fact, Yeah. Uh, any of the mobility stuff that we do, like if something's tight, there's, there's really a reason for it. Mm-hmm. And uh, if you're going to mobilize something and you don't know, see your hips tight and you want to mobilize it, you better go use it immediately or it becomes wasted. Yeah. So, I mean, sure. my stuff has always been, I, um, and we ran into this a ton at the CrossFit football seminars mm-hmm. um, where uh, a little is good. Uh, too much makes fucking a shit show. And what yeah. we found was that people, you know, uh, Kelly Starrett uh, has been a, a friend of mine for shit forever. Yeah. And, you know, Kelly really or took his supple leopard and they just went too far with it. Mm. And I think what we noticed was that people were hypermobile and yeah. they couldn't develop stability in the end ranges where we needed them because right. they had overmobilized. Yeah. So I remember we used to have people constantly come to the seminar and I'd tell them, I'd be like, dude, you've reached level 99. Stop fucking stretching. Yeah, <laughs> because you need a certain level of rigidity and tightness and like the ability to like create tension in those end ranges for yeah. protection. Yeah. If you're hypermobile in the bottom of the squat, you're going to fucking hurt yourself. Yeah. And That's... so what we found is that people were just, uh, you know, like if a little's good, like a little mobility, I, I would rather have people err on the side of a little less mobility than a little more mobility. Mm-hmm. And I remember we, we were at a seminar in Australia and this dude, uh, he was actually a pretty successful CrossFit Games guy. He literally stretched for eight fucking hours at our seminar. <laughs> and then we went to go do the squat and the dude couldn't maintain position in the bottom of the squat because his hips were just so loose. Well, that's that's a shocker. <laughs> and uh, yeah, and he was like, you know, I'm having all this hip pain. And I was like, dude, the only thing you just did, I mean, I know I, I'm not going to tell you exactly what I said to him because it was kind of vulgar and probably not you know, age appropriate. <laughs> but I was enough. like, yo, man, like the only thing you did was like, you know, prepare to get banged missionary. Like that was like the only, <laughs> like, the only thing I could think of was like, dude, you are so like so flexible yeah. um, that under load, they're like, you know, if you look at any Stu McGill stuff, 
Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the idea of like creating tension and mm-hmm. you know developing rigidity and you need yeah. a level of stability in these end ranges to survive Absolutely. to be able to lift heavy weights. Absolutely. Yeah, I fully agree. And I think like the definitions around mobility kind of get floated around, but I, I think of how mobile you are is how much like active range you have control. Yeah. That passive range is where you run into trouble. And your gap between your 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 passive range and your active range is that unstable piece. And I think that's Maybe it's starting to get better. And I think like Kelly Sturette and, and Stu mm-hmm. McGill have kind of waved a good path for that. Um, well, we, uh, years ago, we, um, when I was in Newport, we ended up trading out with some uh, people that did yoga that mm-hmm. wanted to start strength training. Yeah. And the thing that was amazing was that these people were all hypermobile uh, yeah. in passive range of motion. The mm-hmm. minute we put them under load, they couldn't squat anywhere near parallel. Yeah. And, uh, their actual their squat ended up looking like uh like literally like a dog shooting a razor blade <laughs> round back shaking like it was awful and i remember thinking like dude these people are like the most flexible people i've ever seen yeah and that really started that kind of idea of like active versus passive range i'm not like mm-hmm. passive range of motion doesn't help me no. like can you develop stability and more importantly can you actually get to these ranges while under load yeah because i mean you think about it like that's what sport is right yeah can i maintain these stability under sure. load in a dynamic situation yeah and especially because so many injuries happen at end range like if you've got no strength there your ankle is going to roll a lot easier those little things are kind of add up um yeah fully agree um before we get going i want to chat a little bit about the nutrition piece um this i think like there's a lot of different schools of thought in terms of what when we're thinking specifically about strength calories and protein probably the the first two conversations we should talk about the other thing is like high carb versus high fat whether that should be your your source of energy when you start talking someone through nutrition or getting a plan together or maybe talking to a friend through like nutrition or nutrition coaching or whatever um what what do you put at the top of their priority list uh i always talk i always start with protein um yeah. i won't deal or work with an athlete that eats a low protein diet yeah um, i mean at, at the end of the day if you can figure out the the protein requirement the really the carbs and fat is going to be based on taste yeah. and really what you're into mm-hmm. so i think um you know when you listen to people get into the macro debates they're really focused on carbs versus fat mm-hmm. because they can't walk back on protein like there isn't a i mean I've, I've, i would be very hesitant to ever work with an athlete that was like you know what i want to eat a low protein diet i'm like uh, you know like once we figure out the protein needs good luck we kind of build, yeah. yeah we build out all the other stuff i mean i've done high fat i've done low carb i've done high carb i've done low fat i find mm-hmm. somewhere in the middle is pretty good yeah. Um, unfortunately you know there's people that uh with nutrition like n- nutrition is like the new religion and yeah. that there's people that are in these camps i mean you know and it's like they uh they take it pretty serious dude the wacky vegan people are as bad as the carnivore people um <laughs> it's, and it's true it, it's true. true i mean uh yeah. I, I did talk for the nca on metabolic flexibility mm-hmm. and you'll hear a lot of the paleo um you know people in the keto deals are talking about metabolic flexibility mm-hmm. as their approach increases metabolic flexibility mm-hmm. and metabolic flexibility is defined as your body's ability to use different energy sources seamless and effortlessly kind of yeah. like athleticism so when you're in this um, aerobic you know autonomic state your body should be burning fat when you all of a sudden flip it over, put your car in and you go train or you run or, you know, whatever happens, your body should switch over and use glucose mm-hmm. as a, as a, a, a energy source. Sure. So like your body's ability to switch back between the two mm-hmm. is what we know as metabolic flexibility. Mm-hmm. As um, I, I remember, I first heard the term over 10 years ago 
And I spent about 10 years researching this and trying to pull everything I can. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the 10 years, when I ended up doing the talk for the NSCA, the one thing that was very, very abundantly clear was there was really no mechanism to allow you to get to uh, metabolic flexibility. Like you have to eat a keto diet to be mm-hmm. metabolically flexible. Mm-hmm. You have to do this. The only defining factor that came down to the degree of metabolic flexibility was your relationship in muscle mass to body fat. The huh. leaner you were, the more metabolically flexible you are. The more muscle you carried, the more metabolically flexible you are. It didn't. There, there was no like there was no supporting information mm. that uh, that was like you know you have to use this to become metabolically flexible. It all came down to whatever you have to do to be jacked and lean, and the leanest dude is the most metabolically flexible. Mm. So if you ate a uh, you know high protein, high carb, low fat diet and you got lean. Because you were doing a ton of aerobic work and training and doing all this, and you were lean, you were metabolically flexible. If right. you ate a carnivore diet, now the one thing that's wild about it, and I'll walk this piece back: um, the greatest form of metabolic flexibility and the greatest form of health is the person that can eat the most diverse diet. Mm-hmm. So the most metabolically flexible people can eat the most diverse diet without issue. Huh. So if you naturally partition yourself by saying, "I'm only going to eat red meat." then you're actually not proving you're not using metabolic flexibility as it was intended. Right. So the people that can eat the most diverse diet that can move between both carbs and fat tend to be the most metabolically flexible. They Mm. also tend to be the people that carry the most muscle and the leanest. So if you want to be the healthiest and I mean, and it makes sense. I mean, think about fats, extremely oxidative. Yeah. Right. So you're going to have a ton of issues with just carrying excess body fat. Muscle Mm -hmm. is extremely insulin sensitive Mm -hmm. and everything seems to work better when you carry muscle. If you look at actuary charts, people that end up carrying their muscle the longest, that's why sarcopenia and, uh, you know, old people losing muscle is such a major issue because when you start losing muscle, it's like, you know, all of a sudden your actuary charts, like you will die at this point. Yeah. Um, not likely to get tight to (laughs) you. diabetes no. if you're a beer muscular person either no and uh uh the one wild thing about type 2 diabetes is um if you look at some pictures of people with type 2 diabetes uh usually like it's uh let me see how i say this like it's it, it's really fascinating because uh, my son's type 1 diabetic so mm-hmm. we deal with this on a daily basis with him and mm-hmm. so the fact that type two diabetes is 100% fixable, mm-hmm. you know, because it, it comes down to, uh, when you're type one diabetic, the beta cells no longer work. So mm-hmm. something happens within, um, you know, the autoimmune system and the body starts attacking beta cells, beta cells regulate both, both insulin, which is really fascinating in that the body works two ways with insulin. It like when fasting, the body kicks up insulin mm-hmm. so that your blood sugar doesn't crash. Yeah. And then when you eat too much, it brings it down. So it's actually this like kind of like almost like cushion. Yeah. Well, for a diabetic, when the beta cells don't work, you almost have to, you have to give a long acting insulin, like Levomir for right. fasting, but yeah. then you also have like, are they have hemologamy and they got other ones to manage the, the hubs. So looking to see the amount of like hitting a moving target that we deal with on a daily basis for my son, the fact that there's people that have made themselves type two diabetic by one being overweight, eating a shitty diet, not exercising, doing all the things that they can, yeah. And then have effectively basically made themselves insulin insensitive, which means their body's still producing insulin. It just doesn't work. Yeah. And if they lose 20 pounds and get in shape, you know, type two diabetes goes away. But yet we don't have the medical community that's like, all right, we realize you have this problem. We need you to lose weight. And then you get into this like, oh, it's hormonal. It's this. No, like the law of thermodynamics have never changed. 
<laughs> you know, I mean, like at it's the true. end of the day, if you consume more than you burn now, whether or not I don't give a shit about how you manage your, you know, basal metabolic rate or how many calories you think you burn. Mm-hmm. If you consume more, you don't lose weight. And yeah. like, I really wish it was hormonal. I really wish that, uh, you know, Jason Funk's ins- insulin paradox and this mm-hmm. and all these other things were true, but it's mm-hmm. not. Yeah. I mean, shit, dude, they've, they've had people that have eaten in the caloric restriction, eating Twinkies every day and lose weight. So sure. whenever I run into people like, oh, I can't lose weight. I'm like, dude, it's the forks problem. Yeah. Blame the fork. <laughs> and they're like, no, 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 I, I can't. And I'm like, okay. And, and I, I actually got into trouble on this one where I was like, uh, I had a client. And I was like, go, go Google um, Auschwitz and go Google like, uh, like the Holocaust and all this. And, you know, the fact that there's actually a huge percentage of this, of this generation doesn't believe that the Holocaust happened blows my fucking mind. Um, especially when there's like, you know, you can go visit Auschwitz. That's that's news to me. That's absolutely. Oh yeah, wild. You, you didn't know that uh, uh, millennials and a bunch of this uh, current generation believe that um, that the uh, Nazi internment camps and all that is actually a hoax. It's just just like the moon landing, it never happened. Yeah, yeah, like yeah. the moon landing never. Yeah, I mean it's yeah, they're, wow. They're, yeah. Well, I'll just get you on that conspiracy with like the moon landing. How many people believe it's faked? Think about there was a hundred over a hundred countries involved in that moon landing. And especially like with us going to space, yeah. think about the tens of thousands of people that were involved in that. We can't keep a fucking secret. No, there's no there way. were 16 seals, right? That went and got bin Laden and one dude writes a book and yeah, he just yeah. happened to be the first dude that claimed it and wrote the book. I mean, yeah. we can't keep a fucking secret in this country. And you're telling me <laughs> that for over 50 plus years with hundreds of countries and tens of thousands of people that nobody would have come out and written a book. Get the yeah, fuck out of here. Yeah. <laughs> But um, 100%. Yeah, so so I, I get a little pissed with the type two diabetes stuff because it's uh, basically we're putting tape over, you know, the check engine light yeah. on a bigger issue. Mm-hmm. And it's like, you know what, like you 100% did this to yourself. Now, did uh, the food companies fuck you 100% mm-hmm. because they made super high, highly palatable food mm-hmm. that taps into your serotonin and makes you crave it. Just like when you walk into a Vegas casino and you see the lights and you hear the, all the, you know, all the machines going on, you want to gamble. Just like on social media, when you click on, you obsessively start clicking it. It's designed that way. It's true. I mean, like, uh, like, have you ever sat down and eat? Like, has one person ever eaten one Dorito? No, it's because Doritos <laughs> are built in a lab so that you consume the entire bag. So yeah. we have created these hyper palatable foods that tap into all of our, you know, primal ancestry. And they've mm-hmm. gone into this emotional thing and the crunch in this. I mean, so like, we're not necessarily equipped to deal with it. But being like, it's not my fault, like I have a hard time with that. And they, um, so, but like I said, to go back to metabolic flexibility, um, people that are extremely lean that carry a lot of muscle don't develop type two diabetes. Yeah. hundred percent. Um, this has been awesome, John. I appreciate it. So what's, uh, what's on tap for power athlete this year is, do you have new programs in development? What can people expect from, from, from the, the business? Yeah, no, uh, for power athlete, um, you know, we do multiple things. One, obviously we coach people with training programs. So we're kind mm-hmm. of, um, you know, to consumer. So we actually provide uh, training programs for people. You can find those at power athlete, Yeah. Uh, if you go to, uh, to training site, we got different programs that fit different archetypes for athletes that we're working with. Mm-hmm. We do education through the Academy. Uh, so we have an Academy program where we, uh, actually bring people on the journey of educating them with this type of information and then allowing them to come test and then become our coaches. Awesome. Um, we're launching out a big remote coaching deal where we've seen people make uh, great progress in our training programs. But the next really evolution of this is bringing a coach into your training environment and then allowing somebody to take you on this journey. So we've been working on that. We do nutrition and uh, we do a podcast as well, Power Athlete Radio. So 
Um, we got some like 600, some episodes, so we've been doing it for uh, a while, but, um, you know, really the, the cool part is for me personally is coaching people and taking them on the journey, um, mm-hmm. allowing people to do, uh, you know, provide them with information so they can go on and live a, you know, healthy, strong, abled life. Um, I think being able to give people, uh, the gift of performance, more importantly, athleticism and strength and all these, you know, uh, traits and attributes and being able to, you know, gift them those. Yeah. allows them to live a healthy and prosperous life for eternity. And I think that's been, um, you know, a great piece of power athlete has done and just being able to help kids get scholarships and help fathers and mothers train their kids effectively and hopefully extend this to the next generation. Amazing. Absolutely love that. Before we go, I want to ask you a little bit about your your personal health and, and fitness priorities these days. I think as a coach, it's easy to kind of get pulled 10 different ways. Um, what is at the top of your list of your personal health and well-being and what do your habits look like around that? Uh, so for me, um, so right now I'm testing a program, uh, which is just a three day a week, full body program that, um, mm. I ended up writing for a guy who does uh, Brazilian Jiu Jitsu. Cool. So I've been doing that training. So it, it looks like, um, basically it's, yeah. So, I mean, I, I've uh, been doing that. It's a uh, really just an ABA and then it kind of goes BA or BAB kind of a deal. Okay. So I've been doing that. And then on my, so I do that three days a week. And then the other days I do just a ton of, ton of aerobic capacity stuff. So mm-hmm. I've been um, testing um, this thing called hypermax oxygen. Mm-hmm. And what it is, is it's a, it's a machine that pumps pure oxygen into a, like a huge bag. Mm-hmm. And then it has a, a deal that goes into a mask. And I do a bunch of like high intensity exercise underneath it. And it's about 12 to 15 minutes um in that and it actually has some really fasting health benefits that we're working through especially with the idea of um you know it it, yeah so i mean we're still in the testing phase of that but um i for me personally uh making sure that i'm working on developing a big aerobic base to build upon and then Mm -hmm. what's been pretty fascinating is um because i think i've lifted weights for so long and i've always kept a pretty high amount of muscle mass uh, I don't nearly have to work as hard as I used to. Mm. So like uh, for me to maintain um, what I do, I mean, really only like three, maybe three, four days a week. Like I'll do this yeah. program three days a week, but normally mm-hmm. it's really just two on one off, two on one off. Yeah. And I try to do uh, some form of big squat. There's always going to be a ton of unilateral movements. Mm-hmm. Um, I've gotten into using some more machines. So we've added some more machines in cool. just because uh, I read some really fascinating research that talked about muscle and hypertrophy being greater and with um stability mixed in Hmm. so like uh if you can take the stability aspect now this doesn't do anything for central nervous system efficiency or athleticism but like pure hypertrophy if you can use something that takes stability out of the equation where Hmm. like for example if uh you know, uh, I have a hammer incline uh, press. Yeah. Like if, if I sit in there and all I have to focus on is pushing, mm-hmm. because all the research is really fascinating on um, on hypertrophy. Like the number one key factor for hypertrophy is mechanical tension and it's working on. towards failure. Right. I mean, uh, like if you can create tension in the muscle mm-hmm. and you can work towards failure and do it safely, mm-hmm. then you're effectively driving hypertrophy. So that's been a big one for me. Mm-hmm. Um, I tend to eat pretty well. Um, you know, I, I tend to weigh and measure, I eat a high protein diet. Uh, I don't eat like an asshole is my biggest one. Um, maybe drink like maybe one or two drinks a week. Um, I get my blood work done. So I try to figure out where I'm micronutrient deficient. It's a big one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the food you're eating today is about one tenth as nutrient dense as it was a hundred years ago. Yeah. So we, we, you know, we, we've stripped out the soil. So that's a yeah. big one. So being able to go get some micronutrient testing mm-hmm. done and then being able yeah. to supplement that one. 
another one I've been really kind of just my head just exploded. I just finished, uh, or actually I'm in the middle of, of, um, uh, I can't remember the lady's name. Uh, she wrote a book on basically like how plastic is affecting our bodies. Um, mm-hmm. she was on Joe Rogan about a year ago, Dr. Shauna Swan, I think is her name. Okay. And she, she's a pretty bitching book that you guys should check out. I can't remember. Let me pull up the name of it. Um, but yeah, if you want to, if you want to link that, um, cool. she has a book about how like plastic is affecting not only like, uh, testosterone levels, sex binding, globulin and hormone, um, how it's affecting testosterone. I mean, uh, huh. uh sperm counts and this, yeah. and, you know, I mean, it's really fascinating stuff. So that's been a big one for me, like trying to avoid plastic. Mm-hmm. Um, the, uh, the other one that's uh, been pretty fascinating, uh, is, you know, I'm, I'm not like a huge, um, you know, sauna. I mean, I've always done ice baths. I mean, I did that mm-hmm. for majority of my NFL career. So I think that stuff's mm-hmm. real interesting. Yeah. In terms of like longevity, I know Kelly Starrett's real big into it. We went to his place and did a bunch mm-hmm. of sauna stuff. So nice. I think, uh, one, anything that gets me outside. So, um, I have a pretty big piece of property here. So we're constantly managing this stuff. And, mm-hmm. um, so, I mean, anything that gets me outside and, you know, uh, the other big thing that's a big push for me in terms of eating and performance and health is, uh, my wife is in such phenomenal shape, dude. She's absolutely shredded. Wow. So, uh, like the, her conditioning and as much muscle as she carries and the shape that she's in, uh, like wakes me up and like busts my ass. Cause, uh, <laughs> she makes, she constantly makes me look bad. Yeah. So I think that's pretty good. <laughs> Amazing. I uh, appreciate you sharing that, man. What's the best means for people to follow you? Is it Instagram? Yeah. Instagram at John Wellborn. So if you shoot me an email or a, a DM or whatever, I usually respond to stuff. You can find me a power athlete and I'm just at John Wellborn on socials. Like I'm not huge on Twitter cause just feels like noise, but, um, yeah, I'm easy to find, man. If you put in power athlete, John, I'm easy to find. Amazing. All right. Appreciate the time. Much appreciate it. Thanks for tuning no in this episode of Hellspin Academy guys. We'll see you next time. Hey, what's up guys. Thanks for tuning in today. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Thank you so much for supporting this channel. This has been a fun project. We are growing in viewership every single week and we obviously couldn't do that without you. So thank you for continuing to tune in. I really hope you're getting value out of the, the programming and the content. Just wanted to give you a heads up. I've been working on a a book on health and longevity the last couple of years, been collaborating with my colleague, Dr. Dan Vitale, who's uh, an expert in the field as well. And we've basically just kind of summarized the literature, some of the techniques that we found really useful in the world of biohacking, what our exercise regimen looks like, what's, you know, cardio type stuff is going to help us live longer and healthier, mobility work, nutrition. We've covered the whole spectrum, everything that you can basically be in control of in your health and fitness kind of moving forward to help you live as healthily as possible for as long as possible. And it's available free for download. So if you click on the YouTube banner, you'll see a link to download the, the blueprint. It's also on our Instagram profile or on the website. You can click on fivepillarmethod.com slash optimize to get your free copy of the book. And I hope you enjoy it. Hope you're keeping well. Thanks again for tuning in and we'll see you next time.